Hall, Glens Falls. It's 8 o'clock. Morning. This is Northern Light for Monday, January 29th. I'm Monica Sandresky. And I'm Todd Moe. The St. Regis Mohawk Tribe has reached a settlement with Monsanto over toxic chemicals that were dumped near Aquasasne in the 1970s. Basically alleging what other parties who have brought similar PCB lawsuits against Monsanto have alleged, which is that the company knew these products were toxic and continued to market them to manufacturers regardless. Education leaders in New York are pushing back on Governor Hochul's proposal to give less money to schools. We've been celebrating the fact that the governor fully funded foundation aid for the last year. So it's really disappointing to see that we're back having to have this conversation about insisting that we keep the promise to our schools. And as we wrap up our series on far-right extremism, we talk to the hosts of our investigative podcast, If All Else Fails, about their findings. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Adirondack Experience, the museum on Blue Mountain Lake hosting ADKX Winter Fun Day on Monday, February 19th, featuring indoor and outdoor activities. Details at the ADKX.org. And by Apothecary Chocolates, making gourmet chocolates by hand from all natural herbs, botanicals, and tree syrups. Apothecarychocolates.com. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandresky. And I'm Todd Moe. Governor Kathy Hochul's budget proposal to direct less money to schools and change how aid is distributed has been met with almost universal opposition from members of both major political parties. Karen DeWitt has more. Hochul wants to lower the inflation factor in what's known as the state's foundation aid formula. The formula is used to calculate how much money each of the more than 700 school districts receive each year in the state budget. Data collected in November estimated the inflation rate at 3.8 percent, but Hochul's budget would increase spending to account for inflation by just 2.4 percent. The governor also wants to end a longtime provision known as hold harmless. It guarantees that no school district will get less in state aid than the previous year. At her budget presentation, Hochul took a shot at some of the state's richer schools, saying they're holding millions of dollars in reserves and could use that to make up the difference. One would think that that could be used to reduce property taxes, but it's still being held in reserves. The proposals have angered many in the education community, including the teachers' union, New York State United Teachers. They accuse Hochul of backtracking and of breaking a promise she made just two years ago to finally fulfill a 2006 court order. It said schools must receive billions more dollars a year to meet the state's constitutional requirement to fully educate its children. Melinda Person, the president of NYSET, says the changes Hochul now wants amount to a 400 
$100 million cut to schools. We've been celebrating the fact that the governor fully funded foundation aid for the last year. And so it's really disappointing to see that we're back again having to have this conversation about insisting that we keep the promise to our schools, to fund schools. Person says the union is willing to work on restructuring the foundation aid formula, taking into account lower enrollment due to population changes. But she says when schools are still struggling to overcome the worst of the COVID pandemic and the resulting learning loss among children, now is not the time for reductions. We are not in a recession. These cuts are unnecessary. The school aid changes also face stiff opposition from the state legislature who have to approve the budget. Democratic State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stort-Cousins says ending the hold harmless provision would result in reductions to about half of the districts in the state. About 50%, about half of the school districts in the state will get less money. I think that is obviously difficult. Many of those schools are in suburban districts surrounding New York City, which are battlegrounds for key congressional races this year. The cuts have already become an issue in the race to fill the seat formerly held by George Santos, where the House Republican Congressional Committee is trying to link Hochul's cuts to Democrat Tom Suozzi, who is seeking to regain that post. But lawmakers in districts that represent rural schools are also opposed to the change. A group of Republican Assembly members who are in the minority party in the legislature say their schools would suffer. Assemblywoman Mary Beth Walsh is from the town of Ballston in Saratoga County. She says the change would decimate rural school districts and force them to cut programs that give the students equity with suburban schools. It's going to impact whether a a smaller school is going to, a rural school is going to be able to offer AP, whether it's going to be able to offer talented and gifted programs. On Thursday, Hochul struck back at her critics. She says the reductions are not cuts because the change just lowers the rate of increase that the schools would have received. She says in total, schools are actually getting $825 million more than they did last year. When you don't keep the historic increases in place every year, It is not a cut when you don't meet that again, and that's what they're not understanding. She says the increases of the past two years are not sustainable. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. The St. Rita's Mohawk tribe has reached a settlement with the company that made the toxic chemicals that polluted the Aquasasne Mohawk Reservation. Neither side has released terms of the settlement. In the 1960s and 1970s, the Alcoa, Reynolds, and General Motors factories in Messina dumped cancer-causing PCBs on the land near Aquasasne. They also released PCBs into the St. Lawrence, Grass, and Racket Rivers nearby. Mohawks have said for decades the chemicals caused severe health problems for some tribal members. Those chemicals were produced by Monsanto. Chris Hippensteel has been covering the six-year-old lawsuit for the Albany Times Union. He spoke with David Summerstein. So the St. Regis Mohawk tribe, uh, which previously settled uh, lawsuits with the companies that owned those Superfund sites, is now suing Monsanto or has sued Monsanto basically alleging what other parties who have brought similar PCB lawsuits against Monsanto have alleged, which is that the company knew these products were toxic and continued to market them to manufacturers regardless, uh, and that the contamination has ongoing adverse health effects for the residents of Akwesasne and the members of the Mohawk tribe. 
you uh, reported that um, Monsanto has uh, settled other cases kind of like this in other parts of the country. Yes. So Monsanto now, again, now owned by Bayer. So Bayer is sort of leading the charge here. Um, They settled a number of cases um, back in 2020 and left notably the St. Regis Mohawk tribe out of that settlement. Uh, The tribe decried that that decision, called it discrimination. while Bear, char- you know, alleged basically that the cases were fundamentally different, and for that reason, the St. Regis Mohawk tribe's case was left out. Um, either way, the case with St. Regis Mohawk tribe dragged on for another three years after that. Um, I want to talk about just like one specific thing in this that you reported, and that involves yeah. um, one of the experts who, um, you know, testified in this lawsuit. Uh, Dr. David Carpenter, who we've um, interviewed about these this situation um, as an expert on PCBs and their effect on human health in stories that we've done about this particular situation in Aquasasne with the landfills owned by General Motors, by Reynolds, by Alcoa. Yeah, so David Carpenter is a professor and researcher at the University of Albany who has been you know, for years researching the impacts of PCBs on human health and specifically the impacts of PCBs discharged into the environment near Akwesasne on the residents and members of the tribe up there. And he has been vocal about the dangers these chemicals pose to human health. And he has testified um, as an expert witness in a number of cases against Monsanto um, on similar grounds as the case that the St. Regis Mohawk tribe brought. Um, Over the course of this a lawsuit during the process of discovery. Um, Monsanto uh, filed a freedom of information request uh, asking for certain records pertaining to Dr. Carpenter uh, from the University of Albany. That prompted the University of Albany to launch a disciplinary investigation of Dr. Carpenter, which ultimately found no wrongdoing. The university uh, closed that investigation, uh, allowed Dr. Carpenter, who had been put on uh, sort of a kind of leave uh, to return to campus and resume his work. Basically, Monsanto went after Dr. Carpenter's records that spooked the University of Albany um, and created a bit of a back and forth um, that ultimately wound up with Carp- Dr. Carpenter being reinstated. So is there any conclusion that we can draw here about this you know, settlement? They won't disclose you know, anything about it, but that there was a settlement? I think that's fair to say. Um, I think it's also fair to say that... Um, Monsanto might want to keep whatever the details of that settlement are quiet. Uh, Monsanto and, again, its you know successor in Bayer um, have been hounded by lawsuits for years now, and they've been trying to settle those, try and get them out of the public eye. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that, you know, neither party is at the time forthcoming with any information about what the terms of that settlement are, um, and it's not clear they will in the foreseeable future. Chris Hippensteel is an investigative fellow at the Albany Times Union newspaper. He spoke with David Summerstein. (music) 
The Clifton Fine Hospital in Star Lake is fundraising for an ambitious expansion. The 20-bed hospital, one of the smallest and most remote in the state, plans to build a new emergency services wing. The cost of the project is $23 million. The hospital has already secured $22 million from the State Department of Health, the St. Lawrence County IDA, and the Town of Fine. The hospital is turning to the community for the last million. Last week, the Northern New York Community Foundation committed $150,000 towards the goal. Hospital officials say they hope to break ground on the new wing this summer. The state police are still looking for a man who killed a Plattsburgh woman a year and a half ago. In the summer of 2022, 45-year-old Monique Yanulovich was found stabbed to death in her car on State Route 3. A police investigation determined that a man from North Carolina, Larry Hicks Jr., was responsible. Hicks fled the state and was has been on the lam ever since. Last week, Hicks was indicted by Clinton County Grand Jury. The state police continue to search for Hicks and are asking the public for help finding him. The state police described Hicks as a white male, six foot seven inches tall and approximately 300 pounds with brown eyes and gray hair. If anyone has information regarding Hicks, the state police can be contacted at 518-563-3761. The Potsdam Food Co-op's new general manager died from an aggressive cancer last week. According to a letter from the Co-op's board of directors, Mark Rigney was suffering from back pain in December. When he went to have it evaluated, doctors found cancer in his spine. Regney moved to Potsdam from Florida in October to take the general manager role and to shepherd the Co-op's ambitious DRI expansion project. Regney had a long history in the grocery industry. He was also an accomplished artist. He survived by two sisters and a daughter. The Potsdam Co-op's board of directors asked for patience as the organization determines the best path forward. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 814. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up, music to preview the Saranac Lake Winter Carnival. That's in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. This is music by Bill Stokes out of Beekmantown.
Northern Light is supported by Village, the Village Mercantile, bringing Saranac Lake to places beyond the Adirondacks, offering Adirondack-made and inspired goods. VillageMerc.com, anything but general. Two weeks ago, we published a podcast on far-right extremism in upstate New York. It's called If All Else Fails. Since then, episodes of the show have been downloaded more than 72,000 times. The show investigates local law enforcement who have ties to the far-right profiles a Glens Falls man who went to the went to prison for January 6th and it takes a broad look at far-right groups and ideologies around the region. We wrap up the series with a conversation with Zach Hirsch and Emily Russell, the two reporters who hosted the show. They talked to NCPR news director and the show's editor David Summerstein about key takeaways from their reporting and what questions they still have. So, Emily and Zach, you two spent months investigating far-right extremism in upstate New York. And I want to dive into what you found. But before that, let's talk a little bit about how you two got into this story to begin with. Yeah, so Zach and I have spent years covering politics in upstate New York. This is a part of the state that's very rural, and it's become increasingly conservative in recent years. And that's a trend that we've seen in other rural areas around the country. But most of our reporting has focused more on kind of mainstream politics, the shift to the right that we've seen among politicians who represent our region and the shift we've seen among voters. And I think the thing that we hadn't done yet was really dive into the far right side of politics here. We're not just talking about people with very conservative views. We're talking about people and groups who are anti-government or extremist. So this reporting was really focused on ideologies that threaten violence or push the country towards authoritarianism. And we should be clear, while a lot of these ideas are becoming more mainstream, the people openly calling for violence are a slim minority. And I just want to say, this was challenging reporting. It's hard to find sources and information on these groups. You know, after January 6th, some groups disbanded or went underground People seem less likely now to chat and organize on major social media sites. And many people on the far right just didn't want to talk to reporters like us. So good question. How did you go about finding sources and figuring out what the far right landscape in upstate New York is all about? Well, we traveled around the region. We talked to voters, to business owners, law enforcement. And we also just kind of drove around looking at lawn signs and flags people fly, looking at bumper stickers and taking note of the far-right symbols that people put on display. And once you kind of know what to look for, you really start noticing those far-right symbols more. We also, of course, talked to a lot of experts for our reporting, both from here in upstate and national experts on extremism. We interviewed an FBI agent and the top security official in New York, And then we also relied on some of the pretty extensive reporting that other journalists have done on the far right over the years. So one thing I wanted to ask you guys about your findings is how is far right extremism different here in upstate New York than in other parts of rural America? Yeah, this is interesting. So extremist groups gain traction over different issues in different parts of the country. So in parts of the South, white nationalism has really come into the spotlight in response to Confederate statues coming down. That's what sparked the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. In states along the southern border, like Texas, there are militia groups that are anti-immigrant. But here in New York, what we found was that guns were kind of the main focus of the far-right movement. 
Yeah, and we've seen that really on the rise in the last decade. A new gun control measure was passed in New York back in 2013 known as the SAFE Act. Now, being against the SAFE Act and being pro-gun rights, that's mainstream in upstate New York. What we saw was in some cases that legitimate disagreement over gun control kind of morphed into something else. It was a catalyst for anti-government groups and threats of violence, conspiracy theories. And that's the kind of activity that worries the FBI and counterterrorism officials. And to this day, Second Amendment arguments seem to have gained the most traction for the far right. People have used the gun rights issue as a recruitment tool for militias, as a way to say, hey, your government is trying to take this right away from you. What are you going to do about it? Emily, you mentioned racism and how ideas like white supremacy are part of far-right ideologies in other parts of the country. What about here in upstate New York? Well, one thing we struggled with during our reporting was not having any real way to know how widespread a certain belief is. Like, we can drive around and count how many Confederate flags we see around upstate New York or talk to locals and experts about what they're seeing. But there's just no way to know what's motivating individual people on the far right. What we can say is that here in upstate New York, it appears that far right groups and militias and ideologies, they're more focused on gun rights and and anti-government ideology than overt white supremacy. But here's the thing, even if it's not overt racism, a lot of these groups overlap and those lines aren't always so clear, especially when you think about the historical roots. The Constitutional Sheriff's Movement, for example, was started by a white supremacist in the 70s who believed county sheriffs should form posses and basically lynch people. Today, the CEO of the main group in that movement is a talk show host who props up white nationalists and neo-Confederates. In upstate New York, there's also the more in-your-face kind of racism, too. Ku Klux Klan flyers have surfaced in recent years. The Proud Boys have also tried to recruit here. They deny they're racist, but experts consider them a hate group. This series has a narrow focus on far-right extremism. So why did you choose to focus so much on the right? Well, experts told us that's just really where a majority of the violence is coming from. And actually, one bit of pushback we heard over and over when we were out reporting on far-right extremism is, well, what about far-left extremism? What about Black Lives Matter? People, including law enforcement here, have incorrectly claimed that the BLM movement has been more violent than the far-right. And that's just simply not true. That's a movement to protest the police killings of innocent Black people. And it's been an overwhelmingly peaceful movement. We talked with Jackie Bray about that kind of pushback. Bray leads New York's Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services. The truth is that when we look at the facts, we see far more violent extremism and violent extremism that leads to death from racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists in the white supremacist and the neo-Nazi groups. Those are just facts. We don't see anywhere near that from groups like Black Lives Matter. It's not in the same category of groups. Okay, so we're officially in a presidential election year. It could very well be a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. What did you guys find when you talked to people for the podcast about what they were thinking, what they were expecting about the election? Well, there's a real sense of anxiety from people. I think... January 6th was a wake-up call for a lot of folks that, that, that people can be pushed to their limits to defend their beliefs. 
Some experts say the lack of violence during the 2022 midterms was a good sign, but again, I think a lot of people are on edge heading into November. We talked to one woman from the town of Moreau, New York. Her name is Beth Wadley. She's worried things could turn violent. She's pretty far to the left. She feels like the government is broken and doesn't think Democrats are necessarily going to save the day here. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I just think we're headed towards some kind of civil... Civil movement unrest, maybe not full-on war, but there's definitely going to be a reckoning. I don't, I don't know when, but I feel like it'll be soon. And an interesting thing is that what Beth Wadley said echoes what people on the other end of the political spectrum told us. One of those people was James Bonet. Remember, he was part of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Here's what he told us. I think... Trump will win, and then, and then that's when I think that that's when they're going to try starting World War Three. The they that Bonet is talking about there is the Biden administration. And then there's Sheriff Mike Carpinelli from episode two, who says, if all else fails, then we know what we have to do. But I don't think that we're there yet. We'd love to ask Carpinelli what that means. He hasn't returned our calls and emails. But the point is, people across the political spectrum appear to be thinking in terms of a reckoning or some kind of violence, and that is not good. A lot of this podcast is about radicalization as a tool for recruitment among far-right groups. What's being done to push back or prevent people from getting radicalized? So there are agencies and experts that are really focused on that, and the key is to prevent someone from going down the rabbit hole in the first place. We heard that de-radicalizing or deprogramming someone after the fact is so much harder. One of the places that's leading that effort on the national level is the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University. Pete Kurtz-Glovis is from that lab, and he says they're really focused on preventing radicalization, starting at kind of the community level. If we start to take a public health approach to these kinds of issues, then you actually face a real opportunity to prevent folks from falling down these conspiratorial rabbit holes because they are in better connected communities. They know their neighbors. People can recognize when folks are maybe starting to spend too much time online or too much time consuming conspiratorial content. So we're wrapping up this podcast. Emily and Zach, what do you want people to take away from your reporting the most? Yeah, I I think one important thing to emphasize is that there are dots that connect a lot of what may seem like separate factions of the far right. So our series mentions the KKK, anti-government militias, constitutional sheriffs, anti-immigrant groups. There is a thread that runs through all of these. It's about authoritarian control and also who this country is really for, who we the people are. And often that vision of the country is deeply Christian, deeply white. And we say this throughout the series, but it's worth mentioning again, physical violence from far-right extremism appears to be pretty rare in upstate New York. But as we've seen in the past with the racist mass shooting in Buffalo, just one person who's been radicalized can do tremendous damage. And looking at January 6th, just a handful of people from the North Country that we know of took part in that day and dozens more from other parts of New York. And if you take just a handful of people from every region around the country, suddenly you have a mob of thousands that can threaten the political system and democracy in the United States. 
Emily Russell, Zach Hirsch, thank you so much. Anytime. Thanks, David. That was David Summerstein talking with reporters Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch about their new podcast on far-right extremism called If All Else Fails. You can listen to all episodes of the podcast now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or our website, ncpr.org. You're listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. It's 828, so in these last couple minutes of the show, we wanted to make sure to remind you about an event happening tomorrow night. NCPR is partnering with New York Focus, an independent nonprofit newsroom, for a community listening event to better understand the needs of North Country residents. How do you experience news in the North Country and New York State? What are the news organizations doing right and how can they improve? Share your thoughts this Tuesday evening at 6 o'clock, that's January 30th, tomorrow night at the Town of Potsdam Community Room on Elm Street. To register, visit ncpr.org slash nyfocus and make your voice heard. And that's it for Northern Light on this Monday, January 29th. Morning Edition continues in a minute. The House Committee on Homeland Security has released a draft of two articles of impeachment against the Homeland Security Secretary. It comes at a time of heightened tension over immigration policy. We'll hear more context for this story in about 15 minutes right here on North Country Public Radio. Northern Light is produced by a stupendous team of people, Kara Chapman, Amy Feierisel, Lucy Grinden, Emily Russell, Catherine Wheeler, Anna Williams-Spurgen, Todd Moe, our news director, David Summerstein, who edits every story that you hear on the show, and you for your financial support, but also your ideas. We want to know what's going on in your world. Email us, news at ncpr.org, and let us know what we should be covering. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Thanks for listening. Be well.